grateful. Yeah, I was just Justin Brown uh, a few minutes ago. Justin made your coffee this morning, and he's working security this morning along with Jeremy. Justin and I believe strongly that uh, our spiritual gifts are, one of our big spiritual gifts is taking naps. And uh, we think that that should be one of the spiritual gifts of every parent. Uh, and and, and the, the frequency of those naps, of course, will depend upon what stage of parenting you're in. Pretty high for you having a toddler. I think you should, I think you should have mandatory daily naps. I really do. And he should get on your sleep schedule. I really do. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Peter and Elsa for leading us in worship today. Uh, sure. So here's a fun fact. So Peter leads worship at Creekside Christian Church in Elk Grove. Pastor Gary and Joy's son Caleb attends and serves at Creekside Christian Church. So we've got a little uh, connection there. Uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a great church, and, and we're grateful to have you today, Peter. And uh, before you leave this morning, I want to invite you to visit our booth by the front door there. Peter has written and re- recorded, produced uh, some CDs. And so if you'd like to uh, take some of his music home, uh, I encourage you to, to visit that uh, table and, uh, and look into it. I have uh, two of his CDs, and one of them is autographed. So uh, it sounds really, really good when I put it in my car stereo. Okay, so I said thank you to Peter. One thing I want to mention is, um, so so we are, it's it's March 1st. Pastor Gary and Joy, the Rounds of All family, have been on sabbatical for two full months now. And people ask me, um, Matt, are you doing okay? How's everything going with him being gone? Are you doing okay? And the truth is, no. (laughs) No, I'm doing fine. I'm really doing good. And the reason that I'm doing good is because I have you. The reason I'm doing well is because I have Jen and Steve and Tessa and Kimberly on our staff who are doing wonderful, wonderful jobs Sorry? You're on our staff? I did not know that. That's, that's very true. And who are doing wonderful jobs taking, taking care of a lot of different things to keep things, uh, to keep things going. And because of, and I, so I want to say thank you to them. And I want to say thank you to our volunteers. I was going through our church, uh, our database the other day because I was sending out an email blast about our prayer night. And I was just looking through lots of different names and looking at where you're serving. And I tell you, um, we as a staff, to our volunteers, we stand on your shoulders. We could not do this without you. We could not love and serve our community and um, have our service and have our small groups and have our other different ministries going without you. So I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you because if it weren't for you, Gary and I would be in a corner, rocking back and forth, crying out for our mothers. I'm pretty sure that's what we would be doing. 
So thank you, in all sincerity, thank you so, so very much for, for what you do. It is hugely appreciated. Give yourselves a hand. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Okay, awkward transition into the sermon. All right, we're, we're continuing um, 90 Days with Jesus. We're looking at Luke 17 today, and I've got a few things to say before we dive into this message. First of all, one of my favorite uh, authors is Max Licato. He's an author and, and a pastor down in San Antonio, as a matter of fact. Uh, Cody, Cody just got back from a, a, a training, uh, Air Force training in San Antonio. Uh, and in his book, Great Day Every Day, wonderful book, Great Day Every Day, Max shares two different, very different excerpts from two very different diaries, the diary of a dog and the diary of a cat. And I would love to share these excerpts with you right now. First of all, the diary of a dog. 8 a.m. Oh, boy, dog food, my favorite. 9.30. Oh, boy, a car ride. My favorite. 9.40. Oh, boy, a walk. My favorite. 10.30 a.m. Oh, boy, another car ride. My favorite. 12 o'clock. Oh, boy, the kids. My favorite. 1 o'clock. Oh, boy, playtime in the yard. My favorite. Number, uh, number four, uh, 4 p.m., oh, boy, the kids again, my favorite. Oh, boy, 5 p.m., dog food again, 5.30, oh, boy, mom, my favorite. 6 p.m., oh, boy, playing ball, my favorite. 10.30 p.m., oh, boy, sleeping in bed with my master, my favorite. Excerpt from the Diary of a Cat. <laughs> Day 283 of my captivity. <laughs> my captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. They dine lavishly on fresh meat while I'm stuck here eating cereal. Dry cereal. I'm, I'm sustained by the hope of escape and the mild satisfaction that I derive by ruining a few pieces of their furniture. <laughs> Tomorrow I might eat another houseplant. I attempted to kill my captors this morning by weaving through their walking feet. <laughs> Must try this at the top of the stairs. Seeking to disgust and repulse these vile oppressors, I once again induced myself to vomit on their favorite chair. Must try this on their bed. <laughs> During a gathering of their accomplices, they placed me in solitary confinement. And I overheard that my confinement was due to the power of allergies. I must learn what this means and use it to my advantage. I'm convinced the other household captives are flunkies, perhaps snitches. And we all know what happens to snitches. The dog is routinely released and seems naively happy to return. He is no doubt a moron. <laughs> the bird speaks with the humans regularly. He must be an informant. I am certain that he reports on my every move. 
Due to his current placement in the cage, the bird, his safety is assured. But I can wait because it's only a matter of time, my friends. Only a matter of time. Those are the days of a dog and the days of a cat. Same house, same circumstances, same master, but two entirely different attitudes. One is content and the other is conniving. One is at peace and the other is at war. One is grateful and the other one is grumpy. Unfortunately, Grumpy Cat passed away last summer. I was so sad to hear that. He was only seven years old. Boy, he got really popular and made his owners a lot of money. Um, so one is grateful, the other is grumpy. One is uh, positive, one's negative. What does your diary read like? Which diary reads more like yours? More on this a little bit later. Since January 1st, we've been walking together with Jesus through the Gospels, doing 90 days with Jesus, and today we are walking with him in the Gospel of Luke toward Jerusalem. And for many months, Jesus has crisscrossed Israel, preaching the Gospel, doing many, many miracles and healings, casting out demons, showing compassion and sympathy, tenderness and mercy, but also speaking firmly about things like judgment and hell and punishment, proclaiming the full counsel of God to awaken people to their need for a Savior. And in the 17th chapter of Luke, we come to verses 11 through 19. And during this period of Jesus' journeys, we are in the final months of his life. During this time, months and months of ministry, there were, as I said, many healings, many miracles. And there were multiple times of teaching and ministry as he moved around the land with his disciples. And Luke records five miracles for us. They aren't the only five, of course. In fact, if you recall at the end of John, the last chapter, or the last verse in the, in the last chapter of John, he speaks about all the miracles that Jesus did and how if they'd all been written down, there, w- there wouldn't be enough books in the world to fill them. But we do have five miracles that, Jesus, that, that Luke tells us about. And this is the fourth one. The first three miracles that Luke told us about involve one person, and the last one involves two people in Jericho where Jesus heals two blind men. But here is a miracle that involves ten. Ten people with a horrible, horrible disease. And that disease is leprosy, or as it's called today, Hansen's disease. So let's pick up the story as it begins in Luke, verse 11. Chapter 17, I should say. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him, and they stood at a distance. And he called out, and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, Jesus, when he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, as they went, as they walked, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him. And he was a Sumerian. And Jesus asked, as we all would have probably asked had we been there, were not all ten 
cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner, the Samaritan? Then he said to him, to the Samaritan, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So, here is an amazing miracle, the simultaneous instant healing of ten men with leprosy. Now, back in the fifth chapter of Luke, during the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, there's an account of a healing of a leper there, but this is that times ten. This is a demonstration of divine power that is unmistakable and unavoidable. And I might add as a footnote that never did the Jew. Uh, never did the Jewish people or their leaders deny the miracle power of Jesus. They never did. They, they had lots of other issues with them, but they didn't deny this. And frankly, there was really no way they could have, right? Nor could they deny his compassion and his sympathy towards those who suffered. Lepers were, of, of all people, the most to be avoided. That's why it tells us in verse 12 that they, the lepers, they stood at a distance. And then Jesus demonstrates on this occasion, he demonstrates compassion and sympathy and power. And he also undoes what people would have assumed to be a divine curse. As we've learned through reading through the Gospels of 90 days with Jesus, the people in this area at the time had the idea that sickness came about as a result of what? Sin. You've been reading. I'm proud. And leprosy, of all things, so horrific, was viewed as a divine judgment. And so here is Jesus, sympathetic, compassionate, powerful, healing, and in their eyes, overturning divine judgment. Medical historians believe that leprosy originated in Egypt, where it was found in a very ancient mummy. And Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 in the Old Testament, they lay out a very long and careful prescription for determining whether or not someone had that disease. And the local health inspectors were the priests. That was part of their function since they were were responsible to know the law of God and responsible for carrying it out. So if you had a skin disease of any kind, you went to the priest and you went through a process of all that was required in Leviticus 13 and 14 so that there could be a determination as to what exactly you had. The one positive of all this, you didn't have to wait for a referral to a specialist. And if it was discovered that you had the contagious disease called leprosy, you were then removed from all social contact and the only people that you could ever associate with were other lepers. It was the worst the absolute worst, the people that you needed most, your family, your friends, your small group at church, you couldn't come near. You were an alien from all of life, left only to be with people who were as miserable as you are. These people believed that they had been cursed by God and cursed by man as well. And when Jesus comes, they are healed. So this is an astounding miracle from multiple angles. These days, as I mentioned, uh, leprosy is called Hansen's disease. And it is cruel. It is cruel. It is not all at all the way other diseases are because it acts primarily as an anesthetic. It numbs the pain cells of hands and 
feet, nose, ears, and eyes, which not so bad, really, we might think. Most diseases are felt because of their pain. But what makes this painless disease so horrible? For thousands of years, people thought that this disease caused the, ulcer, the ulcers of hands, on, on hands and feet and face, which eventually led to loss of limbs, rotting flesh, etc. However, it's been established that Hansen's disease only numbs the extremities. So the destruction that follows, the physical destruction of the body that follows, it follows solely because the warning system of pain is gone. Does that make sense? So basically, people destroy their own limbs and other body parts because they they can't feel the damage that happens as a result of injury or some other bodily stressor. Okay? So as we look at this story, you're going to see an amazing story of God's divine goodness and tender tenderness and compassion and mercy. You're going to see an amazing story of divine power to reverse that disease, to bring it to a screeching halt, and to, re- and to fully restore all ten people to a pure and whole condition. And as in the case of all of Jesus' miracles, they were instantaneous and complete. This is a story of ingratitude and a story of gratitude and of worship and of salvation. Verse 11. If you have your Bibles open, I want to take you back to verse 11. And it says that it came about while he was on his way to Jerusalem. So sometime during this journey through Israel in the final months as he's preaching the gospel, he's headed finally to Jerusalem for the last time. And he has this encounter with the ten lepers. Now, at some point in this journey, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he's moving through Samaria and Galilee, he entered a certain village, preaching the gospel and demonstrating his compassion and demonstrating his power through the miraculous. So he enters a village. Scriptures say ten men who had leprosy came to him, met him. And they stood at a distance. So they were the miserable people of that time, and they kept their distance. They only came as near as they dared to come. And it says in verse 13 that they called out in a loud voice. Their feeble voices affected, uh, their, their, their vocal cords, their larynx affected with leprosy. They raised their voices as best they could, I guess, in this strange sort of cacophony, saying, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Of all the words they might have chosen, they chose Master. In the original Greek language the New Testament is written in, the word for Master is is epistates. It's used only by Luke, and it's used only here, and it's to refer to Christ by anyone else than his followers. It's, only, uh, it's a word of some weight, and it's a word of some importance. In fact, epistates is a word that speaks of somebody who has authority, someone who has power. And that's why it's used here to apply to Jesus. So here, these men are borrowing a word that affirms Jesus' power and authority, which is to say that they had had some exposure to his power and his abilities. They knew his reputation, okay? It's fair to say that. 
So, these men, this was their only hope, their only chance. There was no way out of this dilemma. There were no cures, no solutions. And so they say, have pity on us. They're desperate. Verse 14, it says, when he, Jesus, saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. Why did he say that? Because he was fulfilling the word of God. He was fulfilling the law of God, obeying it. So earlier I mentioned the priests were the health inspectors of the day, right? So before a leper could be declared clean and brought back into the fold, a priest had to examine them. And one of the things that stuns me every time I read about a miracle is how understated it is. Because if it were me, I would hire Steven Spielberg or J.J. Abrams, and I would make a big, big Hollywood production out of this. It would be like, you know, the sky grew black, and it began to thunder, and lightning bolts flashed, and angels began to sing, and Jesus said, be healed, and the earth shook. But no, (laughs) no fanfare, no hoopla, it's on the down low. They just started walking, and they're made new, and they're healed. Now, the miracle must have been astounding. They're walking to the priests, and you can imagine, all of a sudden, all ten of them are walking to the priests, and they look down and they go, dude, are you kidding me? This is a stunning, shocking, riveting, amazing moment. From the top to the bottom, it was all gone, and they were back whole. All alike started toward the priest, and all alike received a healing. But at that moment, that's when their commonality was broken. Because, if you look look at verse 15, one of them... One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. Only one? One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, came back from that that brief direction, uh, brief moment in the direction of the priests, wherever the the priests were. It might have been in that village or a different one. He stopped in his tracks, he spun around, and he comes back full of joy full of wonder and amazement. And he's trying to process what this means. Think about all of the implications here of him being able to go back to his family, back to his friends, back to his small group on Tuesday night at the Colossians. But he saw more than that, this man. He saw more than that. He saw a lot more than that. He understood the real implications of what had just happened. He had been in the presence of God. And he wanted more than just physical healing. He went back embracing the full potential of of getting from God what he knew he really needed. His heart was longing for a relationship with the divine healer. He wanted to give himself to that healer. He wanted to fall on his face beneath that divine healer as a sinner, recognizing his need for God, to humbly worship him and adore him, as well as to thank him. 
He wanted something more than just a physical healing. He's not content with just the physical. Okay? He understands the reality of his alienation from God and his need for reconciliation. So he comes back and he does three things. So first it says at the end of verse 15, it says that he praised God. That he praised God. With a loud voice, perhaps a voice that was now able to do what it hadn't been able to do for years. He's got fresh chords. Okay? No more squeaky, raspy, leprosy-affected voice. Now he could cry out with new chords, new vocal chords. He comes back at the top of his lungs praising God because he knew where the power had come from. He knew who had healed him, and he knew that Jesus was more than just a mere man. But he doesn't just praise God. He doesn't stop there. Verse 16 says that he threw himself at Jesus' feet. He worshipped God. He praised him and he worshipped him. He threw himself at the feet of Jesus. He's taking a worshipping posture. Any of you remember Wayne's World? We're not worthy. We're not worthy. (laughs) Probably something similar. And he wasn't bowing down to Aerosmith. He was bowing down to, to Jesus. Okay. The third thing he did, so he's praised God, he worshipped God, and the third thing he did, he thanked God. Verse 16, again, he threw himself at Jesus' feet, and he what? He thanked him. He knew that it was God who had given him this gift. He couldn't restrain his praise. He couldn't restrain his worship. He could not restrain his thanks. But his posture is there saying, God, I need you, and I want a relationship with you. I want you, God. What are the other nine guys doing? Well, I think they're doing what Jesus asked them to do. He told them to go show themselves to the priest, and we're going to assume that that's what they did. Beyond that, it's really just speculation. Perhaps they got what they wanted out of Jesus, and that's it. Maybe there just simply wasn't a desire to praise him, to worship him, or to thank him. Maybe there was just a desire to be saved from their leprosy, but not their sin. A desire for their body to be transformed, but not their soul. The one man who returned, though, he knew he needed a Savior. He knew he had come face to face with God and that his soul had been transformed. He knew he was a sinner but he knew that God had showed him mercy and compassion and kindness and power. The others, maybe they were hard-hearted, maybe they were satisfied with themselves, and maybe, as, as difficult as this may be for us to believe, maybe they were just unmoved by what happened. I don't know. Maybe they partied. I, I don't know. But according to this passage, they sought nothing more from Jesus. The one man who did return... It says at the end of verse 16, Jesus mentions, or the, the, the scriptures mention, that he was a Samaritan. The least likely from a Jewish standpoint uh, to be healed, an outcast. I just want to stop for a moment and say, did you not love that video that Daniel put together last week for his message with him and the Smiths and Chip and Gina? The, 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 uh, that was really cool. That was really cool. 
If you didn't get a chance to see that, because Daniel preached on the parable of the Good Samaritan last week, go on our Facebook page and watch the, the message from last week. It was fantastic. So, as I said, the least likely the Samaritans were, from a Jewish point, viewpoint, to be healed. So Jews had no dealing with Samaritans. They hated each other. Samaritans had intermarried with Gentiles, and the Jews believed that the Samaritans had polluted their race and polluted their religion. They had no relationships with them at all. Surely no one would expect God to heal a Samaritan, but we all know that that wasn't the case. And verses 17 and 18 again, they say, Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? The word foreigner, that was a strong word. Nobody came back except this man of another race, this Samaritan. He's a foreigner. He can't go into the forbidden inner court of the temple. But instead, he walks right back face to face with God himself and goes into the Holy of Holies right there. He falls on his face before the Holy One himself and worships in humility and worships in joy. And in verse 19, the story reaches its wonderful ending when Jesus says, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. So you see in this man, you see trust and gratitude and humility and commitment, love, praise, worship, all components of a faith that embraces God. It's a faith that bows humbly in recognition of one's lowliness in his presence. It's a faith that Jesus says saves. It's a faith that saves. I can't help but look at the other nine men and wonder if they are a representation of the general attitude toward Jesus in that day, the general attitude toward Jesus now. Give us healing, give us food, give us blessings, do miracles, but don't expect worship. Don't expect gratitude, don't expect us to acknowledge you as God. You know, as he traveled about and he preached the gospel, Lots of people heard the message of Jesus. Lots of people enjoyed the benefits of his power. Lots of people basked in the wonder of his teaching and his miracles. But only a few came and praised him and fell at his feet and worshipped him and thanked him. The majority, they were the takers. The smaller group, they were the ones that gave him worship. The majority were content with having their quality of their lives improved a little bit. The minority, the smaller group, weren't content until their hearts and their lives were transformed by him. So again, I want to ask you, what does your diary look like? Is it full of a lot of, oh boy, kind of statements or the opposite because we do have a choice, don't we? We have a choice. 
we can't always choose. I tell my kids this. We can't always choose what happens to us, but we can choose our response. We can choose our attitude, which is usually followed by, I know, Dad. (laughs) I know. My hope and prayer for me, as well as for all of you, is that when we take time to reflect on how he has blessed us, how he has shown his faithfulness in our lives, how he has saved us, how he has redeemed us, rescued us from our sin, rescued us from an eternity separated from him, and more, that in response, we will choose praise, that we will choose worship, that we will choose gratitude, that we will choose this attitude, That's a corgi, right? Yeah. Tell you what, if you Google smiling dog, be prepared for the greatest two hours of your life. It is hilarious. I want to invite Elsa and Peter back to the stage right now, please. And I want to pray together, and I want to also afterwards introduce our our offering as well. Let's pray. Father, you are the giver of all good things, as we said earlier. You are a way maker. You are faithful. You are kind, compassionate. You are awesome. You are holy. And we have much to learn from this story. We don't entirely know everything that happened to those nine men, but we do know what happened to that one man, and we do know what he chose. We do know that he chose to return, to give praise, to give worship, to give thanks. Father, each and every day, help us to commit to that. Help us to orient our hearts towards that. And when our hearts stray, because your word says that our hearts are prone to wander, our hearts will wander. We will get misdirected and distracted. Lord, bring us back. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of what's important. Remind us to be grateful because we know that that affects every area of our lives. We love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.